robots and humans are about to experience a whole new relationship in the factory and distribution center, working side by side. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, managing editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain podcast. Robots, of course, are no strangers to industrial operations. Up to now, though, they've tended to be physically segregated from human workers for reasons of safety and efficiency. A typical auto plant, for example, might have robots working at one end of the facility and people at the other, doing quite different tasks. All that is about to change, according to my guest today. Julie Shaw heads up the Interactive Robotics Group at the MIT Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab. Recently, she's been working on what she calls the choreography of robots, the science of planning the movement of robots and humans so that the two can operate in much closer quarters. It means that robots no longer need to be caged behind protective barriers. The result is a new level of efficiency. It's not so much about replacing people as it is determining where they can provide the most value. So here is my conversation with Julie Shaw. Julie Shaw, welcome to the program. Thank you. What do you mean when you uh, use the phrase, the choreography of robots? Yes. So when I talk about the choreography of robots, I'm talking about integrating robotic systems into areas where people are primarily doing the work today. And um, as people are working together, we have uh, a natural ability to coordinate our actions. Um, But robots don't have that natural ability. And so what we need are tasking and scheduling algorithms that allocate where robots do work and when in a way that matches well with the other work going on in the space. And so um, uh, that tasking and scheduling of robot work is what I refer to as choreography. So up to this point, the work of robots has been pretty much kept separate from the work of humans. Is that correct? Yeah. So when you walk into many factories today, what, what you tend to see is a split factory. So, for example, in the automotive industry, one side of the factory is robots building up the bodies of the cars. The other side of the factory is final assembly of the car, and that's pretty much people doing all of the work, and uh, there, you don't really see robots in sight there. And one of the challenges of introducing robots to, do, to assist people is that um, – Robots have typically needed to be kept separate from people because they're large, they're dangerous, they move quickly. And so what we've done in the past is cage the robots um, to provide physical barriers um, that keep people out of the working space of these systems. And what that means is that it's not easy to, even if a robot can do some of the work today to assist people and improve their efficiency, it's often not easy to carve out that little piece of the work pull it apart, separate it from the rest of the workflow, cage it, to then deploy a robot. So it's it's really restricting. Yeah, certainly the phrase caged robots implies some, some amount of danger. Uh, it, 
sort of sounds a little bit scary, but I guess that's just the uh, what, what we've had to do up to this point. Um, maybe I could ask you to back up for a moment. Just tell me a little bit about the interactive robotics group at MIT and the kind of work you've been doing up to now. Sure. So my area of research is human-robot interaction and human interaction with autonomous systems. And what I do is design the algorithms or the software for robot systems, and specifically for the planning, decision-making, and control software of robots. And what I specialize in is how to modify these algorithms so that these systems can deploy uh, more effectively and more naturally into human environments. So um, in the context of the application we were just discussing, it's not practical to physically um, separate the robot and cage it if we want to introduce these systems um, into, um, into new environments in the factory. So, for example, what we do alternatively is rather than physically separate the robots from the people, we can look at how to install sensing and use computation to sense where people are in the space, how far away they are from the robot, and then change the robot's speed as the person nears the robot. So the robots have some kind of proximity detector? Yes. So there's, there's two ways to make this possible. One is through some sort of proximity detector, and there's various sensing systems uh, you can use to implement this. Uh, and this is primarily for what have traditionally been the large, dangerous industrial robots um, that we're used to seeing in factories. They need to be made safe through these sensing systems and through computation. And we are beginning to see safety standards and technical specifications for those safety standards come out that tell us how to do this correctly and how to do it safely. So that's an enormously exciting new trend. It opens up um, a number of opportunities um, to deploy robots where, where we haven't been able to deploy them previously. Um, that's one new trend. The second new trend is that we're seeing the development of an inherently type of new hardware for industrial robots. And these are being called uh, inherently human safe robots. And the idea is that you don't need fancy sensing and computation in order to make these robots safe. They, um, they can be placed in human workspaces working right alongside a person. And the idea is that um, at the hardware level um, and at the lowest control level, if the robot hits a person, it's able to detect that and, um, and it won't permanently harm the person in any way. So it's sort of like a friend elbowing you. It's maybe <laughs> a little annoying, but it won't ultimately harm you um, in any way. So not exactly a proximity detector, but just the very nature of the robot is such that if it does come in contact with a human being, it just won't, it won't because the, the force is not enough to hurt the person? Or what do you mean by that exactly? Yeah, there's a number, there's a number of different ways these systems are designed. Um, one is uh, just physically. It, it doesn't apply enough force to harm a person. Another is that the robot can um, uh, look at its expected loads and torques, and if they don't match um, the expected um, values, then the robot knows it's impacting something that it shouldn't be, and so it can stop. Um, that doesn't require external sensing, so that's um, a model-based approach built within the robot system itself. So there's different strategies, um, but the idea is the same. So these are meant to be um, robots that pick up light, lighter items um, uh, that, you know, if, if they um, bump into you as they're moving an object, it, it won't cause you harm. Okay, but there must be other robots where a certain amount of force and torque is needed because uh, just the very nature of the job they're doing. Absolutely. 
absolutely. Uh, heavy, heavy lift applications. Um, there are a number of applications where you do need um, systems that are able to carry larger payloads. Also, considerations of uh, the possibility of robots disrupting a workflow. Um, how do you handle that and make sure that that goes smoothly? That's one of uh, the research topics we focus on in our group. So at the first layer, uh, what we've been talking about so far is just how to make these robots safe enough to work um, in the same space as people. And that's an exciting new area, and we're seeing multiple strategies for rolling out these systems. But it leads to a second question, which is, well, one way to make them safe is to make them very inefficient. So, for example, um, if the robot slows and stops every time a person comes too close to it, and you don't know exactly where the person is going to move or what they're going to be doing next, you have the potential for this robot to slow and stop a whole lot. And it really degrades the business case for introducing the robot system. So what we what we have been working on are developing um, mechanisms, algorithms, to be able to develop statistical models of human behavior, detect where in the space a person will be at what time, and then we use fast tasking and scheduling algorithms to plan the robot work around the anticipated human work. And uh, underlying this is always the safety mechanism. So the robot will always slow and stop if a person gets too close to it. But what the robot is able to do is think through uh, how it can plan its actions to avoid getting too close to the person. And that has um, a nice benefit in terms of improving the efficiency um, of the task execution. Well, it goes without saying that people are not robots, so I would imagine there's only so far you could go in terms of predicting their movements. Yes. So that's uh, that's one of the challenges, and that's also one of the motivations for this work. One approach to try to make um, uh, human and robotic work more efficient is to make the person more predictable. And one way you could make them more predictable is just tell the person what to do step-by-step step in a particular order. And um, what's difficult about that is that people generally don't like to be told what to do, um, never mind, you know, not even by another person, never mind being told what to do by a robot or, or some other system. Um, and you know, people um, naturally um, uh, do their work in a, in a flexible manner. It's one, of, it's one of the qualities that makes us human. And so to take that away has a number of um, negative uh, impacts. So um, the goal in the work is to really preserve flexibility in people's behavior, give people choices in, in what work they do and in what order they do based on their own judgment, um, and, uh, and model um, that decision-making process, model um, the statistical qualities of that behavior. Even though you can't predict exactly what a person will do next, if you can predict with 60% accuracy or 80% accuracy, what they're likely to do next, that's often enough to introduce just a little bit of adaptation on the robot side to very significantly improve the efficiency of the work overall. It's almost as if we're asking humans to be more robotic and we're asking robots to be more human. Yes. The, the, the goal is to, not, is to not ask people to be more robotic because that's not an effective way for people to do their work. But it, it is, on one end of the spectrum, one solution. It's not the solution that, that we strive for. So what we want to do is observe people doing their work naturally as they do it today, um, model how they're doing it, and then use that to generate robot task plans that naturally mesh with the way people are doing their work today. 
so the other side of it is uh, what we what we are trying to do is make robots a little more human-like in terms of flexible reasoning and flexible decision-making. In the process of making robots more interactive with humans, do robots begin to take on new tasks that they weren't doing before? That's the idea. So it's not it's not so much the inherent capabilities of the robot system um, uh, that that open up the opportunities for new tasks. It's the environment and the context under which the work is done today that really doesn't lend itself um, to current robot capabilities. You know, if we if we talk about the way we work with robots today, it's actually the people that are putting enormous amounts of time and effort setting up the environment and structuring the task just so, so that the current capabilities of robots can do the work. Uh, and that's not that's not the right model. What we want is for robots to be setting up, helping, and assisting people um, to make them the most productive at what people really need to be doing. So what we want to do is um, is flip that scenario around. And um, you know, a part of that is um, not so much developing new robot capabilities, but developing the reasoning, the sensing, the algorithms for these robots to operate in more dynamic environments, more human environments than they've operated in previously. Because I can imagine one might think or one might fear that as you introduce robots into environments where they were not present before, as you bring them more into the human sphere, they take over tasks that humans were doing and thereby reduce the number of humans that are required in, a, in, a, in an operation. This is a question that um, comes up frequently. By enabling robots to move into human spaces, are we potentially, for example, taking people's jobs away? And um, that, that's, that's always a concern. And, and to some degree, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a concern that should be discussed. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not an economist, so I don't have, uh, this isn't, um, you know, the, the area that I, I study deeply. I, I have seen previous studies, not on robotics, but just in, in terms of factory automation more generally. And in some of these cases, um, it, what you see is that um, by, by, by uh, introducing technology to improve efficiency of work, just as a, as a general concept, um, there may be a short-term sort of small dip in um, the human workforce necessary to do that work. But in the long term, the workforce actually increases because uh, output increases and it opens up um, uh, uh, new potential markets, um, uh, the, the capacity of the organization is larger, and it actually allows them to hire more in the long term. So the, uh, in terms of the economic impact, I think it's, it's not necessarily uh, you know, a one-to-one -one, um, this or that, humans or robots. I think, there's, I think the real potential lies at uh, not, not thinking about introducing robots in terms of replacing human work, but thinking about strategically introducing, introducing robots in ways that improve the efficiency of people's work. There are an enormous number of places where people really need to be doing the work for not only the short term, but the long term, probably, probably decades. There are some tasks which are just extraordinarily hard for robotic systems to do, and, and it'll remain that way for quite a while. So the, the long-term goal, in my view, isn't to replace all this work with robots, but it's to truly understand where people are adding value, where, where that expertise that people provide truly lies, and then using um, automated and robotic systems to support um, people in doing that work and to improve the efficiency of, of the overall system. Without challenging too much my math-deficient brain, would you tell me a little more about your algorithm, which I believe is called Tercio? Is that correct? 
That's right. So uh, the last few years, we've been working on developing um, very fast algorithms for doing tasking and scheduling of multi-robot systems. And um, one of the challenges of deploying uh, robots into spaces where we currently have people doing the work is that um, if, if, if a person needs to enter the robot work area, whatever size it is, today the state of the art is that that entire robot cell or robot system is shut down and stopped for the duration that a person enters the space. And the process then, after this disturbance in the schedule, the process of retasking, resequencing, and rescheduling the robot work um, is very computationally intensive. So, for example, for the types of problems we study, uh, maybe about uh, four robots, um, 50 or 100 tasks, uh, it'll frequently take a half hour, an hour, or more to regenerate a new um, task uh, plan and schedule. And that's okay if this happens very rarely, but as this happens more frequently, as we introduce these robot systems into um, more dynamic and more human environments, we see um, more often that people need to enter the space for inspection or for rework, and, um, and it really becomes impractical to, to spend so long doing these recomputations. So the motivation for our work was to solve this tasking and scheduling problem where the robot systems need to execute their work under hard temporal constraints, um, time windows under which certain work needs to be done, um, and not only time windows, but there are also particular spatial locations in the factory where the work needs to be done. Um, and what we did was develop a very fast mechanism for computing near-optimal task assignments and schedules. So rather than, for example, um, a half hour, an hour or more, we can typically compute these schedules um, in about 10 seconds or less. In kind of a good enough mode, I mean, you say not 100% optimal, but enough to, to, make, to, to, uh, to get the job done. Exactly. So the um, the algorithms um, are not are not provably optimal because ultimately you can't compute so quickly um, without without giving something up. Um, but for the applications we've studied, oftentimes it's um, about satisfying deadlines, um, having um, uh, parts be delivered um, on a particular schedule to the truck or out the door at a certain rate. And the primary objective is really to satisfy hard temporal deadlines. And then there are other criteria you want to optimize before, for along the way as well. Um, um, but the primary objective isn't necessarily to minimize the total time to complete all the work because due to logistics, there's external, um, uh, external um, events in the schedule um, that really doesn't necessarily make producing the pieces faster um, a better option. So um, what we do is we aim to provide these satisfying schedules that provide hard guarantees you meet the deadlines that you set out. Uh, and then what we're able to show empirically is that as a bonus, the solutions we produce um, do, um, do uh, appear to be near optimal for uh, the size problems we can test that. Now, as companies move toward just-in-time manufacturing and response to more volatile customer uh, buyer demand, production runs get shorter, uh, batch sizes get changed Absolutely. up more frequently. So does this robot technology, uh, is it designed to be flexible enough to accommodate these rapid changes that are needed on production lines today? That's, that's exactly the motivation. So you can talk about... Um, 
what what are the motivations for wanting to be able to recompute tasks and schedules very quickly? Um, one of the motivations is that you have a more dynamic space because of interdependency with human work. Um, that's one area that we study. But one of the other um, drivers for this is exactly exactly the one you mentioned. So um, being more responsive into um, to um, uh, customization of orders, smaller batches. Uh, ultimately, the algorithms that we develop are useful um, uh, irrespective of the particular driver of the disturbances in the schedule or the changes in, in the schedule. Um, uh, they can be applied to tasking robot systems. They can be applied to studying factory layouts. They can be applied to generating schedules even for um, human work. So uh, in terms of computational techniques, they're very general. Uh, in terms of... Um, sort of midterm applications, uh, I believe they're also game changers for opening up a new class of uh, processes for robotic work. Are there any particular industries or types of products that you think are especially suitable to this kind of technology, or for that matter, some that aren't? Well, let's see. So um, ultimately, the the technology doesn't um, really lie at the lowest level controller. So it's really relatively independent of the system you have um, performing the work, uh, which is what makes it so versatile. Um, so ultimately, it's uh, it's a question of what is the structure, what what is the constraint structure of the um, of the tasking and scheduling problem. And um, uh, in our case, we studied a number of manufacturing applications, and we know that this is a, a technique that. Um, captures um, the vast majority of those. There are other um, applications, uh, for example, in um, supply chain management or routing of vehicles um, that are uh, potentially less well-suited to these techniques. But uh, we also uh, have those under investigation currently and are looking to extend our current set of techniques to these larger classes of, uh, of problems. What about distribution centers? Distribution centers um, is, is one that uh, could possibly fit. So um, do you have a particular um, idea of, of what about the distribution center you're looking to optimize? Well, not in particular. I'm just thinking the distribution centers have definitely lent themselves to a high degree of automation to the point where some of them are these so-called lights-out warehouses where there's no people yes. at all. And so they're no sure. there's no stranger to robots. So robots are no strangers to DCs. So I wondered if, if the interactive nature of the robotics that you're exploring could also be employed you know, on a, on a distribution line. It could. Um, there's, there's no reason um, that it couldn't in terms of um, the technology that already exists. The, the question to study is what benefit do you get from dynamically scheduling the work or dynamically uh, resequencing or reorganizing the work? Um, and if uh, there's, uh, for example, significant process time variability driven from whatever source, um, you, could, you could study the potential benefits of um, of dynamic scheduling. You'll have to weigh that against the switching costs, for example, of reconfiguring the line or reconfiguring um, the timing of work dynamically. Um, so um, to some extent, you, you do need to do an analysis on a case-by-case -case basis to make sure that um, the dynamic scheduling component provides sufficient benefit. Um, but there's, there's nothing in the algorithms that preclude it from application to that area. What's the state of the art in terms of actual practice? Where is this technology that we're talking about in actual use today, if at all? 
for us, this is technology that um, we've been developing for um, about the last two and a half years and um, are currently um, working with um, industry partners to translate these algorithms to um, uh, to the factory floor, you know, coming coming from academia, um, you know, that's that's one of the most um, exciting aspects about working with industry, is um, so the the two way communication, understanding what what the real world needs are um, on the factory floor, and then solving what is the more fundamental problem for us in academia, and then having a partner um, that we've worked with along the way that's willing to take that and, and translate it. And that's not something we're well-suited um, in academia to do. We really rely on our industry partners to, um, to assist um, in that translation. So for us, this is, um, uh, this is underway and expect we'll have um, positive demonstrations of the technology in real-world environments shortly. Any estimate as to well, how many years we are away from actually seeing this in, in, uh, in effect, you know, in factories on a day-to-day basis? I, I don't believe um, we're very far just because of the, um, the push behind wanting to um, develop more flexible processes, be more responsive to, um, uh, to various external factors. And I think where, there's, um, where, where you have this, this need, I think it provides an environment where the technology translates um, much more quickly than it might otherwise. Uh, in terms of these new uses of standard industrial robots, um, this is the future, and it's not the far future. It's it's the near future. Um, the safety standards coming out shortly are um, are a large part in in helping these concepts transition to to the real world applications. And once they do, um, uh, you have this next step of we have a new technology in a new area. How do we improve its efficiency? Um, and so I think this is an enormously exciting time um, to be working in the area of manufacturing and assembly. Uh, and factories of the very near future will look very different than the factories we're used to seeing today. Do you think this technology might be instrumental in attracting manufacturing capability back to the United States from Asia because of the productivity and efficiency gains it might realize? Absolutely. That, that's one of the motivations. So it's looking at um, how it is we can improve efficiency of the work we do here, and ultimately, I, I believe that will have benefits in terms of um, competitiveness um, in you know, worldwide. Wow. Well, that's really fascinating. Uh, Julie Shaw, thank you so much for talking to us about Dances with Robots. We'll be looking forward to your work in the future. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me. That was Julie Shaw of MIT's Interactive Robotics Group. Hope you enjoyed our conversation. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch nearly 2,000 videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SC Brain. See you next time.